Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. I hope you're well. I'm Hugh Wozencroft. Lots to discuss today. Phil Foden in sparkling form as Manchester City end Liverpool's title chances. We'll discuss Harry Kane, who is back from injury and on song for Spurs. But for how much longer? The same true maybe for Jack Grealish at Aston Villa. We'll discuss racist abuse on social media as well. The government going to come down hard on the social media companies. To help me through it all, Matt Dickinson, Gregor Robertson and Tom Clark. How are you doing, guys? Very well, Hugh. Thank you. How about you? Oh, it's one, it, it, it's one of those great sporting weekends. Just so much. A smorgasbord of sport to watch and listen to. And I enjoyed it, even though, of course, most of us don't get out to, to go to the games every weekend. But there was, you know, American football. There was cricket. The Six Nations started. The football was great. I mean, what, what else do you want on a weekend, guys? Especially when you can't go out. Absolutely. And it all started on Friday night with Lincoln 3, Gillingham nil back to the top <laughs> of the table. You forgot that bit. Before Tom Brady came along, you know, we had Tom Hopper nodding in from a few yards out to send the imps back to the top. Come on. I spent a, I spent this marvelous weekend uh, watching Rochdale uh, at Scotland lose two 0 to Charlton, so and then nearly getting stuck in the M62 in a snowstorm. So yeah, cracking Ooh, weekend. Do not, en- <laughs> do not envy you there. Have they built that statue at uh, Rochdale yet, David? Oh, no, no, no. I love that piece. Oh, they though, really man, should. Anyway. Lovely story that guy. All of it culminated, I think, maybe with the Super Bowl, but in terms of football, which is what we're here to discuss, um, the game at Anfield, Liverpool now 10 points behind the leaders, Manchester City, after their defeat. And it's a third straight defeat at Anfield in the Premier League. The Reds haven't lost three in a row at home in the top flight since 1963. And frankly speaking, they were played off the park at times in City's 4-1 win. We'll discuss City's brilliance in just a moment. But let's, I guess, refer, speak about last year's champions, Liverpool first, because I think that is just about it for a a chance of a successful title defence. Gregor, in the words of of Roy Keane speaking on TV after the game, are Liverpool bad champions? Are they bad champions? I mean, Roy didn't hold back, did he, as usual? Um, I think with regards to... You can't, you can't, you can mitigate for the for the injuries. We've said this many, many times. So that you have to part that to one side and look at how they've responded. And they haven't, they haven't responded very well. There have been a lot of drop-offs as well individually. You know, we we've seen it with Trent Alexander-Arnold, the goalkeeper's errors, um, the front three. So there are individuals as well who aren't firing on on all cylinders. And we've spoken about. Why that might be part of that is to do with the loss of some of those players, and then you know it becomes a bit of a cycle, and you lose confidence, and it's you, they're not the same team that they were. So I think he's going a little bit far to say they've been bad champions. I mean, when you look at the the, the figures alone and the points drop off, then he clearly he's got a point. But this has been a bizarre season, and I don't as I said last week. I think when you lose the players they've lost, 
you know, concentrated in one position, I don't think there's any team in Europe that would have been able to to cope with that. So, um, bad champions, yes and no, on the fence there. Tom defeats to, to Burnley this season, Brighton, Southampton, Aston Villa. Um, do you think a fatigue was inevitable this year? I know many people have mentioned Liverpool looking a little bit tired after several incredible seasons. I think a little. I've, we've mentioned before about how their season before winning the title, I certainly believe that they played better in that season, actually two seasons ago, than when they actually won the title. So in that respect, it's a bit inevitable. But I, I think it is getting to the point where you have to start not go, maybe not going as far as Roy Keane, but criticising and questioning Jurgen Klopp a little bit. I mean, yesterday's game, I was looking at it and thinking, not for the first time, for so many reasons, Jordan Henderson in defence just doesn't make sense to me. Because you were watching that first half and you were thinking, not necessarily that City were there to be got at, but that your best method for defending was to try and push them further up the pitch, press them higher up the pitch. Because City didn't have a striker. Um, they were, you know, Raheem Sterling and Phil Foden were roaming around the central areas. But you, you could have played a defender, whether it's one of the new ones or one of the young ones, and had Henderson in midfield, you know, urging that team forward. I think Firmino and Salah in particular look not lethargic, but they look a little bit less intense without Henderson right behind them, barking at them the whole time and going, get up, get up, press, press, press. And that, that, that to me is increasingly a strange decision from Jurgen Klopp. So there's a bit of fatigue, but only the same for every other team as well. All the other teams had this quick turnaround and the intense run of fixtures. And I think there's just a certain, a few decisions in a few big games where we're having to start to question Jurgen Klopp for the first time in his career. I'm not, I'm not being extreme about it, but he has to take some of the blame, I think, for some of his decisions. Matt, what do you think? Jurgen to blame? Well, that's, I was the Henderson point. I was having a text exchange with a, Liverpool fanatic mate uh, on exactly that um, saying the both of us saying we could imagine Henderson coming coming out in midfield in the second half which which obviously didn't happen um, but you know I, I think it is cumulative it'd be nice to just put your finger on one issue and say this is why they're dropping off but I think there's there's probably 15 different reasons um, and I suspect you know if I was a Liverpool fan yeah you'd be disappointed deflated but I don't think I'd suddenly be looking too deep into it and wondering wow is this you know is this the end of something I think um, you know I think Thiago after a you know know, he's obviously a great player uh, and is showing bits of it but I think there's more adaptation to come from him you know and when the team returns to full strength I think there's you know he's a totally different sort of string to the bow in in that midfield Um, you know say I I don't I, I think they will recover to again be a team challenging for big honours. People said, you know, suggest as well that when you're on top, that's the time to kind of lay down a marker, make a statement, spend some money. And, you know, that was another bit of a discussion after the game last night. I mean, they kind of did. The Jota was a signing that everyone looked at and was kind of slightly surprised by. And then he was an absolute, like, <laughs> it was a joke. He was an, had an incredible start to his career, and then he was injured. So th- there have been a lot of uh, the, so many little issues, I think, in in Liverpool season, and and the, you know it's been said before as well. But the the absence of fans, I don't think there's many teams had the, that kind of power behind them at home when they needed it most. And and you know even Guardiola mentioned that uh, after the win last night. So 
I, I think I, you know, I don't think you can criticise Liverpool too much. To be brutally honest, I think there are you can criticise individuals and you can look at how they have dropped off. But I think as a whole, the club didn't didn't win the league, and then as Roy Keane was suggesting, kind of go ah, and take a deep breath and go, you know, we've, we've cracked it, lads. I don't think they did that. Um, Tony Cascarino, let's reflect on the game. Writes in the Times that Allison's kicking errors were an accident waiting to happen and it was horrendous and I think some Liverpool fans and maybe Jurgen Klopp slightly feeling that that had cost Liverpool the game I'm not too sure about that yeah okay they, they were clear errors in fact Tony Cascarino called them as bad as the Loris Carius errors of the Champions League final in 2018 but I think Manchester City were so on top and dominant for so much of the game that I'm not sure like Jurgen Klopp basically implied Liverpool deserved anything out of the game, Matt. Um, is it fair to blame Alisson? Well, I think he's, you, you blame him in the sense of, you know, he, he passed the ball um, several times straight to uh, the wrong colour shirt. And, I think and the not first even, one was, was deserving of more than one goal. Yeah. Well, that, <laughs> there was that many errors, you think. He could have and it could have conceded it, two goals. Yeah. It wasn't <laughs> even as if he was being, you know, hounded down and, and under huge pressure. So, look, that, you know, there were clear mistakes. You know, he'd missed a week or so. It, he, he was, you know... <sighs> A bad, a really bad afternoon. But again, I, you know, I don't think I would suddenly say, well, therefore that means that Liverpool are wrong trying to play it out the way they do, or that Allison is not the man who, who can do it. I think to compare to Carriers doesn't make a, a whole lot of sense to me. In the sense of this was just um, those were, you know, a young nervous keeper just crumbling on a on a big stage and this this was actually a world-class keeper who just suddenly looked you know sort of just really out of sorts but again you know like the wider Liverpool issue would I suddenly be thinking is Alisson the right guy no I wouldn't would I suddenly be thinking you know wow do we have a sort of fundamental problem of playing out that way I mean you know it's uh, you're not going to suddenly start abandoning certain principles like that either so it, it was it was it was spectacularly bad, um, but n- not I didn't think part of a, some sort of pattern that I suddenly think has exposed uh, a, a, gr- a great flaw or vulnerability there. As bad as those mistakes were, Manchester City were absolutely brilliant, and they're setting new levels of excellence. I think in the Premier League at the moment, fourteen straight league wins that equals the all-time record by an English top-flight team, alongside Preston in nineteen eighty-two, Arsenal in nineteen eighty-seven. Um, Gregor, what do you think was the key in the win for City? Phil Foden. <laughs> it's pretty easy that. I mean, he was just an absolute shimmering form. He was he was incredible. The way. He He's touched the way he controls the ball and and moves at pace with it. He keeps it so close to his feet as well. You know, him running at you is just a, an absolute nightmare for a defender. I and mean, he shifts it and he's shot before you even get a chance to get a block off. He was brilliant. But the thing about City in this run of form, which kind of came out of the blue, and you know, I remember after that Chelsea game saying that it looked like they got their mojo back, and thinking after it was a bit too kind of was a bit too gushing about this. But it was just like it was remarkable, wasn't it? It was a click, and you thought. This is City, as we know City at their best, and they've continued with that. And it's all been about as a team. They've been as a team, kind of so many functioning parts. Gundogan has been outstanding. Uh, Sterling was outstanding yesterday. Silva has refound his form. Cancelo has come in, and he looks like a fifty million fullback all of a sudden. So that you know, Diaz has been 
I'd probably sign another season. Um, but I, the thing is, is the collective for me. It's not, you know, Foden was brilliant. We'll speak about these individuals, but they look like as a team, all the function, all the parts are functioning so well together. And you look at the way they've spread out the goals as well. I was looking down the list of goals: Sterling, eleven; Gundogan, eleven; Foden, ten; Torres, eight. Jesus seven, Mares six, Silva. It goes down. There's so many goal scorers. We thought when Aguero was was out, you know, where where are going to get the goals from? And other people have stepped up. It doesn't. It hasn't had to be a striker. It hasn't had to be Jesus stepping forward. And they've played with a false nine. They've had little tactical tweaks. Um, and this is them without De Bruyne as well. So I mean, they were they were fantastic, and it does look like they're going to be impossible to catch now. Uh, there was no Sergio Aguero, no Kevin De Bruyne, of course, as we know for City. Tom, are you surprised by the control that City had over a, a fixture like this without players like that? A little bit. As I said earlier, I was a bit surprised that Liverpool weren't a bit more full throttle and on the front foot. But that's the psychology of it all. You know, we talked a few weeks ago about Manchester United playing Liverpool perhaps on reputation than on form and looking a little bit nervous and only coming into the game towards the end of it. And I think perhaps there was a little bit of here where Liverpool were rightly worried about City and how good they've been. And so perhaps, and you know, wary of the fact they're playing midfielders in defence and trying to, um, trying to mitigate that by playing in a little bit of a less intense fashion. But on, on the point on without forwards, I think that's, as Gregor hinted at, the team, the team um, effort from City to be in this position essentially without really having a proper striker all season. Jesus has come in and out. Aguero has barely played. It, it's that finding a way to win. You know, they've, a lot of games they've won by one goal, one nil. Early in the season, I remember watching them against Arsenal, they won one nil. Brighton, recently, Brighton played very, very well uh, against them. And it was that man, Phil Foden, who got the goal with a brilliant one-two with De Bruyne. So it's it's... It's as Greg has said. It's problem solving, if you like. You know, I was critical of Klopp just just now for not having a lot of problems, admittedly, but not finding the right solutions. Guardiola, you know, he's had more luck with injuries, but he still had a lot of players out. They had a big raft of players out with COVID only a few months ago. They found ways to win against Chelsea. Found formations and systems that worked in those games. With play, I mean, you know, you have to say that. They weren't that great in the first half, and there was all. I was also watching it. Does anyone know where Cancelo was actually playing? He looked like he was playing like an inside right back with Bernardo at right back. It was. It it, it didn't seem to be working in the first half, but then worked far more effectively in the second half. And that 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 is where Guardiola deserves a hell of a lot of credit for, you know, moving these players around. Um, you know, as if as if they're kind of you know chess pieces allowed to roam all over the place just to find the winning formula. I think it's amazing what he's done to to have a defence that looks, aside from Ruben Diaz's mistake, pretty much impenetrable in many ways for a lot of the games that they've played. Um, a midfield that just can dominate possession at times, control the tempo, control the, the areas of the pitch where the game is played. A couple of his players just picking up, you know holding midfield roles attacking midfield roles playing out wide you know it's it's just been unbelievable and of course to still score goals without a, a genuine centre forward starting games for you it's it's remarkable um, I think Pep has to take a lot of credit I know people out there were saying about him last year you know is he the manager that we think he is he's got all this money he's bought all these players and yet 
they they weren't at the level that Liverpool were at and they've responded. They've responded. It's been absolutely fantastic to watch. Well, I say that I support Manchester United, but you know what I mean. They're, they're, a, they're a special team right now um, with a special player who Greg has already mentioned in the shape of Phil Foden. Matt, he was instrumental in the win and it, he continues, I think, to, to grow in stature. A lot of people saying he's arrived after the game last night, but I think he's played pretty well in a lot of games previously, to be perfectly honest. Um, instrumental in the win, as I say. How big a talent do you think City and England, to be honest, have on their hands right now? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, first half, he was stuck in that sort of false nine position, wasn't he? And I, yeah, he didn't look comfortable to me. And it was interesting that, you know, sort of a few questions inviting Guardiola to shower praise on him. And he, he you know, it wasn't. He didn't do a sort of Mourinho, I'm going to take this opportunity to slap someone down to... Um, for the hell of it, he you know, but he did make the point of look his, you know, that his movement wasn't quite right in the first half, and that he felt it wasn't you know it, it was Foden that was sort of struggling in that position. But obviously, when they they switched and then Bernardo came, Silva moved uh, up front, and that just made a, made a big difference. Um, and Foden, um, I think, looked most comfortable in that sort of latter period when he was sort of cutting in off off the right, um, cutting in onto that left foot, and he's just. He's a Rolls Royce of a player, isn't he? I think, you know, we sort of feel as Englishmen in, especially in tournament year, you sort of feel excited by the options of, obviously Grealish has had this sort of great wave of, of form and, and sort of popular support. And Madison, I've seen a couple of times in the flesh recently, who looks absolutely just some absolute lovely stuff as a sort of number 10. But I think Foden, obviously we talked about right back to that under-17s World Cup as the say, the Rolls-Royce of, of all the young English talent. There's been a frustration of Guardiola holding him back. And I suspect Guardiola sort of sees a performance like yesterday and said, look, I had a plan. Yeah, and, and that plan seems to be, you know, paying off with the blossoming of, you know, a proper high-level international class talent who protects the ball beautifully, can beat a man, which I think is key. You know, he, he doesn't... You don't look at him and think, wow, he's explosively quick. And yet, but he, when he gets past someone, he seems to, you know, move away from them. Um, he's the power he got into that f shot with so little backlift. Um, he's got, he can clearly see a pass. He can clearly pick a pass. He's just got all the things that we, you know, dream of from a young English footballer, technique, vision, creativity. And, and I think, uh, you know, of all the sort of playmakers that we do gush about, he is the one that Southgate is most likely to to sort of turn to and look for in that sort of creativity around the penalty area. I think it's interesting Matt touches on Pep's role in um, Foden's career because for all he's achieved at Manchester City, it may well be that the best thing Pep Guardiola ever does at Manchester City is what he's done for Phil Foden in his career. And Matt also mentioned that under-17 World Cup. If you look back at that squad, it shows how difficult it is to be a young player, you know, we've talked about this before, a young player, and then go on and become a proper senior pro and star. Rianne Brewster was in that team. Morgan Gibbs-White was in that team. Uh, Jonathan Panzo, I think, was a defender for Chelsea who's gone off to France and isn't playing. So Phil Foden coming through in the way that he has with the patience that you know Guardiola has shown, I think Guardiola deserves so much credit for how he's managed him. And it's interesting that Matt also says about the quotes you know that you hear about Guardiola. I was re looking before the game and there's almost a perfect 
back and forth with Guardiola what he says about Phil Foden. One week he bigs him up, the next week there'll be something where he just knocks him down a bit. You know, in the last, going back to December, at one point in December, he's, you know, he's he's a £100 million player, we'll never sell him, he's one of the best talents you'll ever see. Next week, he needs to be more patient, he's not quite performing on the pitch. You know, next, next week he'll be, he's absolutely class. At some point later this week, I bet you any money, Pep will knock him down again with, for something, or he'll drop him for the next game or, some, or something like that. But his management of him is absolutely class. And, you know, as English football fans, we should be very grateful. Sorry, I think it's quite easy to, to jump in and say that when when he's, he's informed like this this season and the whole discussion for two years has been, why is Phil Foden not getting game time? Why is he not getting game time? Why, you know, when's he going to have to leave? Um, I think the fact is he's playing in one of the best teams in Europe and Guardiola, I don't think Guardiola was really all the time thinking what's best for Phil Foden here. He was thinking, what's my best team to put on the pitch? And now what's changed is he's grown when he's had an opportunity. That, I was amazed by the stat in Henry's report that it's his 22nd start in the league. Like, it's still, <laughs> still not that much. There's 35 off the bench. So I think this season there's been more opportunity for him. It's simple as that. And he's, obviously he's had to take it. But um, I don't know. I, <laughs> Yeah, okay, maybe maybe Guardiola's not letting him get carried away, but I don't think he's like planned this out personally in the in these the last two years, thinking it needs we need a little while before we can rely on him as a starter. But if he was that good, you'd have been in the team. That's the old adage, isn't it? Well, no, if you're that no, good, you'd have been is, in the team a few years ago. He wasn't. But that's, he but wasn't. that's the point I'm making. So he's managed him to this point where he's been giving him more and more game time. Towards the end of last season he got more and more game time. With the view that now he's, you know, now he's ready. No, now, now that now they don't have Kevin De Bruyne playing, they don't have Aguero up front. They have injuries. He was still in the team. Out. He was still in the team without with De Bruyne in the team. He is now, but he wasn't last year. You could have imagined. I think Gary Neville may have even made the point on commentary yesterday that there was a sort of time, you know, when he was looking to make a change around the whatever seventieth minute, whatever, and it was Mares who came off. And you could imagine a year ago that might have been Foden, who's the one who was sort of giving way. Um, I think the fact that Bernardo Silva sort of, I, I, I don't know quite what happened to his sort of earlier season for, I mean, you suddenly see City hit this role and you you sort of, I mean, I, I think um, I probably changed who I thought was going to win the title about 87 times this season. But I think I put City at the start just because obviously they're strengthened with Ruben Diaz, you know, and that seemed to have, you know, 65 million quids worth of, of sort of, problem solving in defence but you, you you look at them when they have hit this sort of streak of form and you think well of course they have <laughs> you know if you've got that amount of good players playing um, under an established manager in a settled you know settled pattern and um, then of course they're going to be this good but I think the crucial thing now is that yeah Foden when you're looking at him next to you know, he's obviously more, he looks more senior in the team than Mares, certainly. He looks sort of, you know, around the same sort of gathering, the same sort of, not seniority as a Bernardo Silva, but he's, you know, they are look so interchangeable now. Um, and it's the fact that he, yeah, he just looks like he is, you know, among them now rather than just this sort of kid clinging on to a, uh, a place or sort of trying to snatch 20 minutes here or there. I, I never know how much of the attention revolves around a, a great young player uh, when they're English, how much of that plays a factor. Of course, he's a brilliant, brilliant player amongst many brilliant players playing very well, as Gregor points out, at Manchester City at the moment. And I think one of the reasons we we're all talking about him sort of 18 months ago 
either playing more often f- for Manchester City or going on loan was because even though, Gregor, you point out he probably wasn't good enough to start regularly for City at that point, he would have walked into about 15 Premier League teams at that point in time. And I think we we all sort of wanted to see him more regularly. And again, I think that pressure came off the back of the fact that we wanted him to play for England. Um, Tom, do you think he's a shoe in for the summer? No. I don't think he is. I don't think he can be with the formation that Gareth Southgate is likely to employ. And I don't want to get into a row about this because I know how you all feel. And I know my my strident position on the back three and the wing backs and trust in Gareth. But I, unfortunately, I think England have got an incredible array of attacking talent and creative young players. But I don't think any of them are guaranteed a place. Only Harry Kane is guaranteed a place in England's attacking lineup. I would say. After Sterling. that... Uh, probably Raheem Sterling is going to play left isn't it well so then you've got if if we can just agree to disagree for the sake of argument on that he's going to play a back three and Declan Rice I and John Henderson I thought you wanted us all to get along I do want us to get along which is why we can then debate which which you know which of the five or six players Jack Grealish Phil Foden Marcus Rashford Jadon Sancho you know get into that final attacking slot you, if, the, if the tournament was tomorrow you'd probably pick Phil Foden but you, you then arguing against Jack Grealish, Marcus Rashford's pace is going to worry any defence at international level. It's, it's incredibly difficult. But I, and I think going back to the point we've made about you know him staggered appearances for Manchester City, he's he, I don't think he's played that much for England at, at senior level. You know Grealish was the star of the last uh, round of matches again. Rashford, for a young man, has got loads of international experience, so perhaps that'll count against him. If the tournament was starting tomorrow, I'd pick him and Sterling either side of Kane, because I think if a player like Phil Foden can benefit from the way that Harry Kane plays the game at the minute with his link-up play and playing people into pockets of space, but it's incredibly tough. That does where where you get into the good hole probably save it for a podcast nearer the time but as you say the 4-3-3 th- the three, three, Foden can play one of the wide midfield roles as well which uh, is one reason that uh, a few of us would prefer to see that but yes in Gareth we trust well, well we have to but um, if, uh, if we take the tournament starts tomorrow I'm, say- I'm saying he's in would we all put him to start ahead of Grealish or someone it's funny though. Seven days ago, I probably would have said Grealish. I don't, uh, you know, I still think Grealish is probably Player of the Year actually in the Premier League this season. So you've got a really tough decision if you're only having three front men. For me, he starts for England. But I've spoken about the the, the desire to have a left-footed player on the right-hand side so that we can get one of our more attacking fullbacks um, further up the pitch in a more sort of natural way. I think Foden lends himself to that as a sort of, you know, not an out and out winger playing in that front three, but as a sort of a creative player. And I'd play Sterling on the other side of Kane. I'd play Grealish as our number 10, Henderson and Rice and a back four. Bloody hell, a back back four. We could have (laughs) Hudson Odoi at wing back could be the new new twist to it as well. Absolutely, and you know, the team of right together. backs. <laughs> <laughs> Going to have about six right backs in this squad at this point in time. Um, Tom, just quickly, this this will not work for Manchester City until they put Edison on penalties because I, I, I can't believe. You know, when they put the little stat up of the last five penalties, and you see like three yellow ones for misses, three red ones for misses, and like a couple of yellow ones for scored, and you sort of think. As a, a squad as good as Manchester City can't have 
penalty takers that are this poor, but but they do. Of the last six penalties that have missed the target entirely in the Premier League, four of them were Manchester City's. It is extraordinary. And you've clearly been reading my Twitter, Hugh, because there's, there's only few things that I bang on about more than Lincoln City. And that's the idea of Edison taking penalties for Manchester City, which... Uh, yeah, it, it would be great fun for a start, wouldn't it? I mean, that'd be absolutely class. And that moment he racket, you know, bangs one against the crossbar and it bounces back out. And then all of a sudden we've got a mad sprint to get back to the other end. It'd be great fun. But I think even Pep, Pep has acknowledged the idea that he's going to have to look at it in terms of penalties. Um, I think there was some some quote, you know, it's a, it's a problem we have in important moments. We cannot miss it. And it doesn't matter the taker. Again, I'm going to think about Edison. He might be the taker next time. He's such a tease, old Pep, isn't he? He's such a little tease. <laughs> Years of teasing us about when Phil Foden's going to play. <clears throat> and now he's teasing me about Edison being their penalty taker. But I mean, you know, we're laughing about it now, but there was the game at Anfield when Riyad Mahrez missed. And that did prove to be a pivotal moment in that game. Gundogan's miss yesterday didn't matter in the end. And we're all raving about City and how brilliant they are. But it, it, is, a, it is a serious point. If you've got a reliable penalty taker, it makes all the difference. And De Bruyne missed against Liverpool as well. Another massive, massive games, it seems to be, all the time as well. Give it to Edison, Pep. Come on. Just maybe when they're 10 points clear or something. Maybe. Then 10, 12 points clear. Then he can let it, him take it. it. It's, it's got final day of the season written all over it, hasn't it? Yeah, you know, already one title celebration stuff. Um, just finally on Manchester City, Gregor. Five points clear at the top. They've got a game in hand as well. I think the next five league games decide the title Spurs at home Everton away Arsenal away West Ham at home and then Manchester United at home for Manchester City with a couple of cup games in between um, do you think the title's decided there? I think it's pretty much decided now to be honest um, I just you know every other team is, is, has its flaws and some look in disarray um, my, you know Manchester United couldn't couldn't get another game over the line Um Liverpool. I think people are going too far when they're saying that uh, you know they're they're going to be struggling to even get in the top four. They need to arrest as quickly. To I think you know they're going to get in the top four. Um, Chelsea are too far behind. It, there's no one. There's no one close. Um, and I like I'll hold my hands up. I did not see this coming. I thought Liverpool were going to hold the rest at arm's length. Not it wouldn't be as big as a big a kind of chasm between them and the rest this season. Um, but they've fallen apart for many reasons. Um, and City have just clicked and they're in outstanding shape. So, yeah, I think it's already over. Matt, can anyone stop them? No, I was right at the start of the season. <laughs> I haven't changed my opinion since, not for a flicker. No, I don't. I, I mean, as I say, there, there is a, there's just, yeah, you suddenly see them back on song. You see the options. I mean, yeah, there's, there's, you know, some of the things that we talk, talk about early in the season. Um, I think we talked about holding midfield and, you know, in big Champions League games, you still, the lack of, um, if Aguero's not fit and still, you know, the, the sort of Gabriel Jesus, is he the man to step up in those biggest matches? Is Rodri still the the, the right man at the, the base of midfield? So, you know, there's still a few interesting questions if they're coming up against, you know, Bayern Munich and the, and the top, top teams. So, but yeah, I mean, the amazing thing is they're chasing you know, a domestic treble and uh, a Champions League still, aren't they? So that's, um, yeah. Well, the domestic treble, they've, they, they've shown they can do that a couple of years ago and, and that's certainly w well within their grasp. The, yeah, I mean, it's a funny year, isn't it? 
funny year. We could see Manchester City winning it. We'll, I'm sure, one day talk about the messages I received last night about Manchester City buying a proper striker and the likes of Mbappe and Haaland being mentioned as well. So it could be a scary prospect for next season as well to see what City do this summer. By the way, you can read Matt's views on an excellent Raheem Sterling, who was fantastic. Uh, He got his first goal back at Anfield since leaving, of course. In the Times right now, maybe single-handedly killed Trent Alexander-Arnold's Euros chances as well. I'm sure that will all be discussed on another podcast. But remember, you can get a digital subscription to the Times and the Sunday Times right now. Get yourself one month free. You can get all of our amazing journalism online. Just search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to get started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Remember, if you're enjoying the game this week, you can give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast from. Five-star review as well for our next subject. Harry Kane returned from injury to inspire Spurs to a 2-0 win over lowly West Brom, having missed the last two matches, of course. Spurs ending a run of three straight defeats, but it's the immediate impact of Kane that has got us thinking. Clearly, Spurs need Kane more than he needs them. The England captain turns 28 in July. He's been a League Cup and Champions League runner-up in all those years with Spurs. But it's now the time he takes his career into his own hands and goes in search of something greater. Matt, what do you think? Should Harry Kane be looking elsewhere? Oh, let's get the postbag from North London. In our way, postbag shows how old I am. The um, the Twitter <laughs> Twitter hate, but yeah, I mean, he's uh, he's turning twenty eight this summer and he's not got a a club trophy is he and it's um, uh, you know if you're Harry Kane one of the top strikers you know in Europe um, of your generation uh, that's that's going to hurt you know you've got childhood affiliations to the club family affiliations to the club it's where you've grown up it's where you would love to to, to come good and you know I, I, I think if he sees out his days at Tottenham he'll end up with um, a, a couple two or three maybe but yeah is he going to win the, the top honours um, it's 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 not looking it's not looking likely is it he's got to a um, the Champions League final, uh, so yeah, I, I, I think it's 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 a huge call. But if he wants to win those big trophies, he probably is going to have to move, isn't he? And that's um, that's just the type of hard nosed decision that a player has to make at some stage, and it's it's going to have to make it pretty soon before it's too late. I think. Gregor, what do you think? Does he go in, speak to the manager, speak to Daniel Levy, tell him it's time for a move? I'd love to be a fly on the wall if he did that. Um, I don't think it would be quite that easy for him. That's the thing in this. I think there's two. Th- well, there's several things. The first is Spurs would fight tooth and nail, and you know there's not many clubs that you would have to fight harder against. I think than Spurs and uh, particularly Daniel Levy uh, to get your way there. So that that's the first issue. The second is the economic climate. 
So who's who are we talking about? Who's going to spend stupid money on Harry Kane at the moment? I, I, I'm not sure, to be honest. Um, but if we're talking about Kane as his, his decision, then, you know, it's it's funny. There's, there's, there's always an expectation on, on footballers that you kind of a bit striving, striving to be more all the time, all the time. Um, and there is something something pretty special actually in spending your whole career at one club and if it's your club and trying to be the one who drags them into drags them on to getting silverware even if it's only the FA Cup uh, you know that 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 would be an achievement in itself so only Harry Kane really can know whether that is going to be enough for him and I get it I, I suspect the answer to that is no I think he is someone who is going to want to strive to to achieve as much as he possibly can in his career and win as much as he possibly can, and the truth is, he won't. He's the likelihood of him doing that at Spurs is very, very slim. So, I think this summer is is going to make or break for him personally. As you say, he turns twenty eight. Um, after that, you're you know thirty is already swinging into view. He's done this a couple of years too late if he's if he's going to have this conversation, because it's it's a huge fee and there's no sell on very little sell on value for whoever buys them. So. But, you know, it would have to be this summer, personally, I think. So, um, I think Harry Kane might well do it. I think he might well, you know, it, it will be important to see how it goes this, this season, whether if they get their first trophy. Um, that might change the dynamic and, you know, he might have conversations about if, if Mourinho's going to be backed. But I think he is someone who's going to want to strive to, to achieve these things and um, I, I wouldn't blame him for that either. I mean, if Tottenham are going to win the biggest of trophies, I think they're several seasons away and I wonder how much time Harry's got to be part of a project. You know, Jose Mourinho has shown already that this Tottenham team, they've got some some way to go. Um, Tom, is Kane and Spurs the, the single most dependent team on, on a single player, do you think? Uh, in the Premier League. Under Jose Mourinho, their win percentage in the Premier League drops from 53% to 30% without Harry. Yeah, I think so. We discussed it um, in a podcast recently and I listed a lot, load of stats that showed how important he was both in attack, both in midfield and even in defence, defending corners, defending crosses. They're incredibly reliant on him. I, I, I slightly disagree with Gregor in that I wonder whether he might be one of those guys who would be happy winning two trophies with Tottenham as opposed to winning everything there is to win with another club. Um, uh, but uh, that's that's judged on nothing other than watching and reading some of his interviews. The other thing to factor in with Harry Kane is that I wonder whether the fact that he seems to have an injury every season may count against him. If you're a big club, as Gregor says, going to have to pay, what, 150 million? At least 100 million? I'm not sure right now, but I know what you mean. Generally well, speaking. Well, with, with Daniel Levy's bargaining, with Daniel Levy's bargaining tools um, and no need to sell him, I think if you really wanted Harry Kane, you might be talking that kind of mad money. Um, so, I, And I wonder whether spending that amount of money on a player who could miss two months with an ankle injury every season might count against him. If we're talking in dream world, though, We've, talked, we've just talked about a team and you mentioned Kylian Mbappe and Erling Haaland. Pep Guardiola's contract at Manchester City runs until 2023. Harry Kane is 28. Man City could decide, do you know what, let's just go and buy Harry Kane and 
try and win the lot because if Sergio Aguero is on the way out, Gabriel Jesus isn't you know isn't up to scratch at the very very highest level. I would love to see what Harry Kane could do in a Pep Guardiola team. We used to think he was just this kind of in the box goal scorer. We now know that he's so so much more. Watching Harry Kane in a Pep Guardiola team, a Pep Guardiola team that's moving into this next phase with the likes of Foden. Cancelo with these other players this next era of Pep City with Harry Kane as the striker linking the play and finishing off those chances that'd be a terrifying terrifying uh, prospect for all opponents across Europe I think to Man City no I don't think Spurs would allow it and I don't think Manchester City would pay that kind of money for a player who's 28 um, it's, it's difficult it really is I think I think um, you know Tom's right. You may, you may be someone who's willing to to hang around with uh, with Spurs, but he also you, you see remember clips from the from the Amazon documentary where he's where Mourinho was speaking to him and he's saying he wants to be wants to get to the same level as you know Ronaldo and Messi and that you know <laughs> it was a bit of a cringeworthy moment. Do you remember it? Josie is saying you know I'm box office basically. I can help you get to that that next level he's not showing it he's not you know it doesn't look like he's going to help Kane get to that next level he's helping Kane perform you know differently and very well in, in a what's a one dimensional Spurs team but he's not going to help him win big trophies at Spurs I don't think so I, I think he does have that drive and I think you know I do think that probably in the next in the next either this summer or next summer we're going to have he's, he's going to have a conversation with him um, and it'll be very interesting to see how Spurs would react to that. I think some of the, I guess there's no other way to call it than debt. I mean, the debt that Tottenham Hotspur are in over the, the new stadium, but also a loan out of the Bank of England means that I think there's more manoeuvre with Daniel Levy than we would have in normal times. Um, you know, ultimately, what, £90 million, pounds, even £100 million, could be a huge help to Tottenham Hotspur to get them, you know, through this period, repay lots of that money or even possibly reinvest. You know, the other thing that we've seen from Tottenham's team this year is that there are clearly parts of their team that they need to invest in. Okay, they've, they've got a top-class striker at the moment. If, if he leaves, they'll probably need to buy another one. Maybe not at the same level, but they certainly need defenders right now as well. And it's you, you wonder where the money will come from, from a manager like Jose Mourinho, who will ask for it, to improve that team so that he can continue to start to, to keep telling us about how great his reputation is and what wonderful jobs he does at every club he's at. So he's going to ask for money and where's it going to come from? And I think, uh, you know, the injuries of Kane, the age of Kane, does a Daniel Levy think, look, this, this is a player that we didn't pay for. You know, this is a player that we could get 100 million quid for. And yes, okay, you need to find a buyer. But generally speaking, he might be more open to selling him because if there is a huge chunk of money that he can get for a player who costs nothing, you know, at a time where, you know, you, you, we are still looking at it saying, even at the ages of 25, 26, 27, 28, Harry Kane got injured every year. Do you want to have him at 29, 30, 31 and 32? And what size and what level of injuries is he going to have? You know, this might be the time to cash in in many ways. So I think there's more room for manoeuvre than there has been in previous seasons. Who's the buyer? Well, as Tom said, it could be at Manchester City. If Firmino gets sold at Liverpool, it could be a Liverpool. We don't know what Paris Saint-Germain want to do. We don't know what Inter Milan want to do. I know I'm not saying all of these clubs are going to take him on to, to winning Champions League or winning league titles. You don't know what Juventus are going to do if, if Ronaldo leaves. You know, like if Harry Kane's available, there might be interested parties. I think Juventus is probably the only one that I would say was 
any way realistic there. And the way, you know, it's Manchester really United, interesting. who aren't going to win anything, probably, but also maybe, like spending maybe. big money. You know? Maybe, but it's it's really interesting how the kind of financial collapse of Real Madrid and Barcelona kind of absolutely fun, you know fundamentally alters the way that the very best players in this country that was the that was really their only leap. It's the same with Salah. If we have a conversation about Salah now and what his future is, ordinarily that would be your bargaining tool, or it might be the you know the 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 next step you you envisage for a player of that that caliber. There's no chance in a million years that 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 that, that kind of move is going to happen now in the next probably the next two years so well who knows because they really are in a mess they're facing you know Barcelona are potentially facing bankruptcy so um, yeah that, that, that's gone so just all I'm saying is the, the the pool of clubs that are even you know have any possibility of spending that kind of money have, have diminished so I mean it's fascinating with the, the finances I know this is getting off the Harry Kane topic but you know you look at Messi's situation as you say Gregor mentions about um, yeah, Barcelona um, and and their massive financial issues. Then we obviously we've seen you know, Messi's wages come to the fore, um, two million quid a week. Um, not not uh, not bad. Um, I guess if anyone uh, who can kick a ball deserves it, it's him. But it's you know if you're City, are you looking at you know some kind of elaborate package for him that sort of you know you, you you're doing it partly as a footballer, partly as a the world's sort of greatest marketing coup and then you ship him out to America and stuff. It's, it's, but I think the, the state of football finances is, yeah, is going to be really intriguing over the next, uh, over the next 12 months. And there's a lot of sort of weird pockets of fragility as well as, uh, as well as income out there. The last thing I'd say about the Spurs fans hate, they hate this conversation. They hate every time you speak about it. And as Matt says, I'm sure we'll get some some messages uh, explaining exactly that. But at the same time, can they honestly look at the way their team play as playing at the moment and think if you were one of the best strikers on the on the face of the earth, essentially, uh, you wouldn't have some glimmer of doubt in the back of your mind, no matter how much, how big your connection to, to that football club, even if it's not as big as you, 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 know, you fans listen to this. There would be a there would be an element of doubt, unquestionably. So it is a valid. It, there is a reason this keeps coming up, um, and it's because Spurs have not developed and kept pace with the quality of player that, that Harry Kane is, and as I'm sure they would, any kind of sensible Spurs fans would admit that. But just to try and keep the last few remaining Spurs fans on side <laughs> who have who have not yet slammed their uh, <clears throat> phone across the room, uh, that's the, the things we've just discussed. You know, I threw City out as an option. Gregor says no. Matt's pointing out all the you know lack of options out there. The other thing for Kane is for for him in his position as a club legend, you know, chance to be record goal scorer, da 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 da, all this, chance to maybe win one or two trophies. If he's going to leave and sacrifice all that, he wants to be guaranteed that he's going to then win the trophies elsewhere. And I don't know whether there are that many options either, because I don't think you go to a Manchester United team and Harry Kane necessarily even makes them guaranteed title contenders I'm not trying to wind you up Hugh but so it's, it's that's why you go to PSG and you win the French treble 18 times but then and that, uh, yeah quite right but does that count as much as winning you know two domestic trophies for Tottenham I'm, I don't know whether it does for Harry Kane and again I don't, you know, never met the bloke but he just seems to me like someone who maybe would favour trying staying winning a couple of domestic trophies than you know sacrificing that legendary status 
to try and win something elsewhere because I don't think there's any guarantees at any other club unless he you know listens to me and goes to City for two years it's going to be interesting to see what he does with his future and and I think you're all right you know if the money is there in the market and if there's a club willing to come forward and pay it but I think he's more ruthless than we give him credit for you know comes across as the nice guy etc etc you know if there's a chance of a big club with more chance of winning trophies puts him number nine out in front you're going to be our match winner you know he'll he'll, he'll certainly have to think about it no offense Tottenham fans um, because He's one of the best. You know, he's one of the best around. I think we'll end next, though, by discussing, uh, look, a sad story in football of late, a story that has been growing over the past few weeks. We could have spoken about it, you know, on on every episode of the Game Podcast for the last three or four weeks, probably. Um, Social media abuse, in particular racist abuse directed at the likes of Axel Tuinzebi and Marcus Rashford and Anthony Martial of Manchester United, Alex Jankovic, the youngster from Southampton, amongst many others, to be perfectly honest. This is a story that, you know, happens after every round of games, it seems, in every single division at the moment. Um, Racist abuse and online abuse is a massive issue for the sport, and it looks likely to be addressed very, very soon. The Culture Secretary, Oliver Dowden, said this morning, online racist abuse of footballers is absolutely shocking and must stop. In advance of this recent spate of cases, I called a meeting to hear first-hand accounts of the daily abuse players receive and the awful toll it takes on them. We are going to change the law to make social media companies more accountable for what happens on their platforms and they can start showing their duty of care to players today by weeding out racist abuse now. Players must not be abused for doing their jobs. Enough is enough. You know, it's good to hear that there's going to be some sort of response on this and some sort of pressure applied to the social media companies. There is a part of me that thinks in many ways the the companies are only one part of it. We need to get to the root cause of why some football fans out there, if you call them that, some people believe that the first response to a player having a bad game or, you know, a mistake on the field is to send them abuse firstly, and then in in many cases to send them racist abuse. Um, So the social media companies for me are only one part of it. The major part of it is the, the people who would do that. Um, and I'm sure none of us are going to be able to put ourselves in, in their, you know, in their shoes, but there is a part of me that, that, and and I know people will criticize me for this, that will say, look, it's time the players use their power here. They've done it for a day here or there, you know, they need to withdraw their presence from social media for a period of time, not, not to make the fans react, but to make the social media company stand up and listen a little bit, because most of those social media companies have admitted that a large percentage of the traction that they get is from sport and athletes. It's a major part of their product, but they're not treating these players like part of their family. They're treating them like, you know, outsiders, basically. They're, then they're choosing not to protect them. That has to change for me. Um, Matt, what do you think of all of this? Um, well, it's an interesting point, that last one you make. I mean, I think I, I think it's a good point. And I, I think it would have to be... To be effective, uh, I imagine it would have to be quite a collective effort. You know, it's not just the odd player here coming off it. Um, um, so, you know, but I, but I, I, I can see, I can see it gathering hold if this if this continues. Um, uh, I mean, it's good that Oliver Dowden, um, as we see this morning, is is saying that the government is going to take more 
action um, and force these platforms um, to, to, to realize what they are, which is publishers. I mean, it's, 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 they, there is a responsibility on, or should be, I think, on a Twitter or so on to, to, to police their sites. Um, there are so many elements, different elements to it. I mean, this is sort of moving away, obviously, from um, maybe a little bit from the race issue, but just onto the broader issue of engaging on social media. I mean, I do, I do wonder whether... I was talking to an um, experienced Premier League player, or ex or Premier League player last week, and he was just saying how he is alarmed at the 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 interact the amount of interaction that many of the younger players he engages with have with social media how much they are um obsessed by it to be honest i think he felt that you know that their, their, their sort of their happiness seems to come from the feedback they're getting on social media the you know the sort of um praise or more often the stick they're getting on social media and how how much time he is having to spend with younger players telling them you need to get off this stuff you need to stop listening to it you need to now to say this is you know say slightly different from the racing because if any if any of that is on there then that's just abhorrent but it's it was just the fact that he just felt like that their heads were being lost in the world of social media and i do think from those conversations and that's not a unique conversation from those conversations there is also a broader picture here of just i think clubs you know probably being more proactive in just trying to to sort of you know speak to players about how much they're yeah they're, they're, a lot of particularly young players are sort of lost in that world as well so i think there's a lot of different issues there to cover but i, th I think you know i think the fact that the you know, Twitter, etc. have got to get on top of it is is a huge thing. And I think a, a stand by players would be, um, yeah, interesting and un very understandable. You know, I kind of agree. Obviously, the, the counter argument is why should you, why should players have to come off it? Like, you know, it's not something they should have to do. But I agree that, that, that when the PFA coordinated the you know, enough message, that was quite, that was powerful. That was undoubtedly powerful. So, you know, something like that, again, I think would would have an effect um, and football is you know you're right foot, a lot of traction as you say is associated with football football is a big deal but at the same time I, just, I don't know this is such a big issue it's, it feels like there's a slight bit of kind of naivety in the discourse around this in that we're saying that social should social media firms do more yes like should people be held to account yes but these platforms are being have been used to <laughs> To subvert democracy, <laughs> they have been used to kind of, like you know, by countries uh, and you know for all sorts of underhand uh, reasons. And I, I just, I think that even you know, even though the government seem to be showing that they've got will to do something about this now and to try and make social social media companies do more. Um, I still would be very surprised if they if if it's effective because social media social media thrives by having more users and more more people interacting with it, and they are absolutely they will do anything they can not to restrict that or diminish it because the value of the company drops. So governments have tried for for years and years. So people have written really well about this in the Times, and it, sometimes they can't even get an audience with these people. Like it, they're more powerful than governments. So. This is not an easy task. Football is a kind of, although it's a big deal, yes, and it gets a lot of traction, it's one little fraction of 
of the kind of vast <laughs> vast expanse of social media and what it's used for and some of the things it's used for and they still aren't really doing anything about so you know good luck is basically my is, is the thing i say so i think it really when you look at that and yes you got to try and pressure but the thing is you've got to i think you're better coming back to the players just now and saying what can you do you know what although you shouldn't have to undoubtedly you shouldn't have to be doing anything you shouldn't have to change your behavior you know maybe the, the thing about you know now you can switch off replies that, that that would be good for their own mental health as well i think so you know any, any little things that, that players can change or a collective message that they can put forward i think is the thing that football should be looking at it should always you know with the help of government should be pressuring but uh, good luck basically a couple of interesting points raised by all of you, really. I mean, to me, the thing that can be done in a broader sense comes not from the players, but from the sponsors. These huge, huge companies that sponsor footballers, that's where the money lies and that's where the traction lies. You know, if we think back, and this has been going on for a long time, you think back to Paul Pogba joining Manchester United, that was basically announced on Twitter with a video of Paul Pogba and Stormzy which was coordinated by Adidas. And, you know, that huge, you know, took off. I can remember us doing a story about the video announcement going viral and, you know, trying to explain what Stormzy's rap meant to Times readers and all this kind of stuff. And But but and we still see that now all the way through football, all the way down the pyramid. You know, on transfer deadline day, fans announce this guy, announce this guy. It's all through social media. But so if the sponsors pulled back as well and, you know, Nike have done some quite good work lately in the past few years with you know anti-racism campaigns with some of their top athletes and things but i i would take the the pressure off footballers to say what can you guys do and say it's their sponsors because good social good social media is about projecting a good image of yourself and if you have a good image of yourself on social media then you bring in sponsorship because people will pay you to to wear their product because you're going to go on Instagram and go latest boots, check them out. You're going to go on Twitter and put up a little video of you in the latest, you know, gear. That then people that are at this young age, as Matt said, are going to are going to buy it. So it, I think there's a lot of pressure on the sponsors to do something as well. The second point is that the, what the clubs can do is with their young players, and I think there are uh, there are you know actions being taken. I've got a sister who's 22, and she's told me about some of her friends who you know in the past years they're just so consumed by social media they'll post a picture and if it's not got 50 100 likes in an hour they take it down and we're forgetting that a lot of these young players are of that generation that's what they've grown up with they've grown up with social media as a way of communicating all the time snapchat that's that's how these you know these people communicate through the day-to-day -day lives so that's why you see pictures after the matches and players are on their phones instantly because they're posting pictures because that's their way of communicating that's the way of getting good feedback and but also it's a way of projecting an image you know we all see it all the time at every level are oh, not the result we wanted today but we go again you know you can almost you, you trot it out all the time but every every fan then likes yeah we go again bro you know you can do it da 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 as a fan you're instantly then a connected because you're like oh you know, they've shown a bit of empathy they're they're, they're hurting as well and then as a player, you feel a little bit of, you know, you're eased a little bit. I mean, I don't know. Gregor, if you could go back, would you have been on social media connecting with all the Grimsby and uh, 
Forest fans. I never really tweeted about football. No, I don't. You know, I know there are people who do that, and you know, it's the same. Like, let's be honest, it's the same if you if you write a write an article as a journalist and you put on Twitter, you kind of check back, and if it's 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 about kind of gratification, isn't it? And that's a that everyone feels that. So you can see where the draw is for for footballers. They want to they want to be praised, and that's a platform where they can be praised by hundreds or thousands of people. Um, but just to you know, to it's just such a big issue when you're when you look at you know everyone. So many people say you should account should be verified, you should have a passport or a driver's license to open an account. But every, you know that would have to be done <laughs> for everyone. And then you're talking about you know social media is used where people are protesting against oppressive regimes, and they need to be anonymous. Uh, there's also a question about handing that personal information to these companies who already have so much of our information. So there is no easy answer to this. And part of it is, you know, kind of a broader societal thing. And part of it is how football can use its power, because it has got power, to try and make life easier for... It's making life easier for footballers. I'm sorry, I don't think football is going to change, change the world on this. It's making life easier for footballers. I do think there's an easy algorithm for them to write, which is essentially to allow people who are verified to change their accounts to non-abuse <laughs> and, you know, have a, an, a couple of thousand words that you can't tweet to what account that has that selected. So That's complicated too. And apparently they have, they've upped their thing, they've got 35,000 people now working on looking out for abuse, but there's 2.7 billion users. Well, they don't, this is the point though, if they write the algorithm, they don't need anyone to look out for abuse. They just need people to write the algorithm so that you can't send abuse. So... <laughs> I think if it was that straightforward, it would be done. There was, I was reading things I'm not, I'm where there's, there's certain, I'm, 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 there's certain Gregor, characteristics that, that, Gregor, that I'm point not sure towards anti-Semitism. I'm not example. sure it would. I'm not sure it would, Gregor. I'm not sure it would. Because there are, after a football match, thousands upon thousands of hate messages sent. It's a huge amount of traction for them. They look at the numbers. They look at the amount of people that go online. And they know that sports fans, angry sports fans, will go and tweet and tweet and tweet and tweet and tweet. It's all part of the business model. Uh, you know, it, it would not be hard for them to, to block you. Look, if, if I can't put a question mark after a hashtag... Then I then they can write an algorithm that means I can't send the N word or a monkey emoji to a particular account. They, I mean, they they can they can they've been doing this long enough. They they probably should have done it already. But I just wanted to take the the issue back to racism in that there's a feeling I feel that racism and football in many ways will will never be disassociated. You know, it's still at a point fans aren't even in grounds at the moment, and that we're still talking about racism in football. Matt, I wondered if if you feel like we will reach that point ever that we won't have to talk about racism and football in the same sentence. Oof, that's a big question. That's uh, it's a very sad question, that isn't it? Um, wow. Well, I guess my in instant feeling is no, in the sense of we're going to be talking about racism as long as I'm as long as I'm around, and that you know, in society and and. Football gives people a chance to vent stuff that, um, yeah, <laughs> football brings out the, the, the can bring out the best in people, can certainly bring out the worst, and and I think that that sort of um, mob, uh, the hide the sort of ability to sort of almost hide in them in in the crowd sometimes 
encourages that and uh, and that's so yeah I, I, if, if you want the sad honest answer to that question i suspect as long as i'm sort of around talking about the game we're going to be there's going to be issues like this I, I don't see that that's going to be um eradicated any any decade soon um and there is that you know that broader point that you know we can try and crush it in different places whether that's you know two or three people in a in in a stadium like Raheem Sterling suffered at Stamford Bridge or we can try and stamp it down you know here and there on social media and there was that case last week that Ian Wright was talking about and got very un, you know understandably dismayed about that he felt that the sanction against the the teenager who abused him was um was was too light and too lenient and you can absolutely understand his his uh you know very since sort of heartfelt um pain about that um so we yeah we're trying to sort of get on top of it in different places and that's that that's that sadly that is uh, uh, a never-ending piece of work isn't it i would like to think so it's incredibly difficult as matt says but i from my experiences of going to football matches and hearing people say things which i i can appreciate as either racist or just unpleasant and that I can tell they don't think is offensive it seems to me there are you know there are different we're talking about people targeting people on social media and saying things there's also the other element of people saying things in stadiums when people get back into stadiums that are particularly unpleasant and vile and you know I've, I've talked before about going to games with my sister and my dad you know a 22 year old and a 68 year old and my sister remarking on things after the game, like, did you hear what that guy said? That was horrible. Did you hear what that guy said? And, you know, her generation being so much more aware of this as an issue and potentially because of social media and because of the way she consumes news, you know, being far more aware of it as a, you know, as a issue in society, perhaps. So I would, I would hope that as, you know, as her generation comes through that across society racism will become less of an issue but that's that's a hope rather than a rather than a prediction unfortunately and it has to be that uh, slightly um negative view what about you what, what do you think you i mean i you know <laughs> let's be honest there's three white guys sat here talking about racism as in society and yourself as a black man you know how, do you feel as despondent as ian wright does at these issues do you have hope for the future I was incredibly shocked by the, the judgment. It came in in Ireland for those people that didn't know the, the person that had sent him a raft of racist abuse. Apparently, it was claimed in court having played as Ian on, on FIFA, on the PlayStation and uh, losing a game or something, then decided to pick up his phone and send the real Ian Wright a, a raft of racist abuse. You know, despite being, I think, 17 at the time, 18 now, um, in court, the judge sort of said, well, Ian's accepted his apology and... Um, you know that the the boy was naive, and um, yeah, Ian Wright dismayed that his acceptance of an an, an apology would have been used in court to sort of mean that this guy didn't get a criminal uh, record off the back of it. And for me, it was you know in a country where we'll, we'll you know there are children in detention who are sixteen, fifteen years old. You know, for someone to not even get a, you know, I'm not saying he should have gone to jail, but to not even have that, you know clear crime on a, on a criminal record because of an apology from the, the victim 
you know, was a real, real, real shame to see, really quite angry about that. But generally speaking, it's daily, Tom. You know, it's very much, you know, I, I could talk about racism, particularly in sport daily. Like I say, it's after, it's in a league somewhere in Europe after any game. And it could be every single day of the week that we talk about racist abuse, certainly to footballers in sport in general as well. Um, and I think, look, it's a social issue. I think that the social media company should do more, but certainly in society, we need to do more. There's a big denial. You know, there is a big denial, generally speaking, around where we are as people and, um, and you know, the, the feeling that, you know, it's just a few idiots. I think football has spent too long thinking that there are some idiots around these fools who, you know, that, that send this abuse are just, a, um, you know, we know that it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a small minority, but the effect that they have is huge. And, you know, to treat them like it's, you know, bloody these idiots once again. Okay, next year we'll, we'll get an app. We'll start reporting them. The reports go up. You know, that sort of stuff is, is all good and it's all progress. But I think generally speaking, the sport as a whole and the overarching um, message from football and, and lots of other sports has been, you know, rotten apples. And um, I think we need to take it on a little bit more strongly than that um, in the coming years. But yeah, it... You know, it, annoyingly, it will continue. I think for for some time to come, as as Matt says. Go on, Matt. No, I just thought your your point there, and was, I, I wish I'd made it before as well. But it's yeah, it's it's that sort of debate. I know was thinking about it, having done a piece with um, the guys at Chorley recently, talking about about um, um, racism taking the knee, but the the broader point about the systemic racism and you know that that discussion of it's it's like you say there it's about you know we talk about sort of and i which is triggered because i was talking about it before about clamping down here and clamping down there and what wasn't discussed in all that was those wider points that someone like les ferdinand is is so frequently making which is you know that's that's a high profile part of the issue and an easy it's sort of easily debated issue but what about the far more uh sort of harder issues of um the systemic racism that we're not tackling properly in the game about you know representation and about opportunity and about you know whether it's in obviously in football terms in dugouts and in boardrooms and so on and that's yeah i mean say if you're that back to your original question i mean that's that really is taking decades isn't it um to 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 change that's the that is the sad reality of that um and clearly there are people you know looking at it talking about it discussing it attempting it thinking about rooney rules and other and other issues but uh, uh, you know um that that is a huge a huge problem in in football and wider society Gregor, I'm conscious I haven't come to you for a while. Do you, do you want to have the final word on this? Well, I'll come back to your first question. I think this, that we're going to see football without racism. I think, sadly, the answer is no. There are huge kind of historical reasons. I think there's still... I remember writing a piece last year about, although the fans aren't in stadiums just now, there's still some people who don't feel safe going to a football match because of historical reasons. Um, I don't think that's something that's really discussed very very much either I think you know there's progress being made but um, at the moment we feel like it feels like we're going the wrong wrong direction and I, you know I think I don't I don't think you can lay that squarely at the you know the blame of it for that at the door of football I think social media is 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 changing people it's changing us really as as people essentially I think it's making us angrier and 
uh, it's given everyone a voice and it's given um, people access to direct access to people you see in the public eye and and there's other broader questions about the rise of uh, racism across Europe essentially so um, this is, this, these are big to big topics and I think football basically as I said football is a big deal football can take a leading role in, in trying to improve improve the lives of its players first and foremost but also to kind of to to improve the lives of others as well um, but when so where social media companies are concerned I feel like it's going to be a difficult battle the only thing I'd say on it finally is and this is maybe a separate point to social media I have always felt and I thought we started by talking about what a great weekend of sport it is that football is a sport that has allowed the line to be crossed so often that followers of that sport for the last 30 years I've always said that going into a football ground is like going into an atmosphere where it's acceptable to abuse people because you look down at the pitch, the manager is screaming into the fourth official's ear, you know, from a yard away, you know, spit going all over his face. The players are telling the, the referee where to go. The fans then play off the back of that. They're screaming, you know, that I, I watched the rugby union at the weekend. I watched the NFL. I watched the cricket. You know, don't tell me that just because you're out there and it's competitive and it's sport, that that then has to go to the officials. And and you can go into the crowd at cricket. You know, we look at look at what we say about sledging, you know, come on compared to football, you know, <laughs> it, it's nothing in comparison, you know, and, and rugby union, you, they're calling the referee sir. These are aggressive men who are kicking lumps out of each other pretty much, you know, for their sport. Their aggression never turns on the officials. And if you go and sit in the crowd at Twickenham, again, there's always idiots in every single sport. Um, in the crowd or out on the field but generally speaking people are much much better behaved and I think football really needs to do a root and branch look at how people treat one another how they speak about one another um, because I think that really transcends to football fans feeling like they follow a sport where insults of any kind are acceptable. And I'll leave it there. But guys, thank you very much. Matt Dickinson, Gregor Robertson, Tom Clark. Thank you for being with me. We are back on Thursday looking at all of that lovely magic of the FA Cup. The fifth round is upon us. Uh, but remember, if you want to, to get that episode, get yourself a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times. You'll get all of our award-winning journalism across all of your devices. Sign up today. You'll get yourself one month free. Just search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to get started. We'll see you on Thursday. Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson, a weekly series of in-depth interviews with high-profile figures examining how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they've become. This week, rugby union referee Nigel Owens talks candidly about coming to terms with his sexuality, the impact it had on his mental health, and having tried to take his own life at 24, how rugby eventually saved him. People say, you know, you should never look back, always look forward. Well, looking back is important as well because because looking back can help you move forward. Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson. Nigel Owens, in his own words. Now available as a podcast. Listen on the Times Past Radio Imperfect app or wherever you get your podcasts. And Alice Thompson, a weekly series of in-depth interviews with high-profile figures examining how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they've become. This week, rugby union referee Nigel Owens talks candidly about coming to terms with his sexuality 
the impact it had on his mental health, and having tried to take his own life at 24, how rugby eventually saved him. People say, you know, you should never look back, always look forward. Well, looking back is important as well, because looking back can help you move forward. Past Imperfect, with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson. Nigel Owens, in his own words. Now available as a podcast. Listen on the Times Radio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.